Well, this morning we are continue, continuing working through our summer series going through the Psalms, and we are excited that we're having our preaching cohort preach this summer, and today I'm especially excited that I get to welcome Jarrett to you this morning. Jarrett, uh, well, he got saved almost four years ago now. Um, you're getting to be an old guy. And uh, the Lord has just been working tremendously in his life over these last almost four years, and it's been amazing to see him um, grow, but not only grow, but just commit and to set roots here at River City. He's been a part of our community group for longer than I can remember, two years, two and a half, something like that. Um, and so I'm excited to welcome him here, and we did not plan on matching, it just happened. So we're excited about that. Um, yeah, welcome. Thank you, Devin. Um, before we start, I'd just like to start in prayer. If you'd join me. <sighs> Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. You are faithful. Even in our sufferings in this world, God, that we all face in our unique challenges and the ways we've been wronged in this life, God, you, you are with us. Through, through it all, Lord. And we pray that this morning you would um, speak to us from your word, God, that you would be glorified, that Jesus, you would be magnified, that we would turn our eyes to you and that we would be encouraged, that we would be uplifted by you, Jesus. And we pray that you would be glorified in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Hi. So as Devin said, my name is Jarrett. Um, I've been coming to River City for about four years now, and um, I recently got married to my beautiful wife, Joanna, and we love this church. We call this our church home, and it's why it's my honor to be able to preach God's Word today for you all this morning. I'm very excited. Um, our passage is Psalm 17. Um, we're going through the book of the Psalms this summer, um, continuing to anyways. And Psalm 17 does not have a specific context given. So we don't know what exactly is going on, but we do know the author, David, wrote it. And we do know that this psalm is the first psalm in the book of Psalms, sometimes called the Psalter, it's the first one that's titled specifically as a prayer of David. So this psalm is a prayer. And what we can tell from this prayer is that David is innocent, but he's being pursued by a deadly enemy. And so we don't know who that enemy is, but we know that he's being pursued by this deadly enemy. Now, for us, we might not have um, murderers chasing us around like David, but we have been wronged before. We have been mistreated in this life. All of us have. It's the result of living in a sinful world. And so as we read Psalm 17 now, I encourage you to think in light of David's context, but to not separate yourself from his situation. With all that said, let's read Psalm 17. Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. From your presence let my vindication come. 
Let your eyes behold the right. You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. You will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. From the wicked who do me violence, my deadly enemies who surround me, they close their hearts to pity. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, from men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. You fill their womb with treasure. They are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. I have a question. How many of you have a sibling? A lot of you. I have one older sister, a few years older than me. And growing up, we got into a few fights. How many of you have ever been in a fight with your sibling? About the same amount of hands. If you don't have a sibling, I'm sure you've been in a disagreement with a friend at least before. And growing up, most of the time as a kid, there was these situations where either me or my sister was the innocent one, and one of us was really the perpetrator, the guilty one. And we knew it. Growing up, most of the time, I was the perpetrator. Uh, as a kid, I maybe not so accidentally hit my sister in the shin with a jump rope once to see what she'd do. And maybe there was a time where I not so accidentally shot her with an airsoft gun. Sorry. Um, we don't need to go any farther than that. But we wrong each other sometimes for no reason in this life. And as we grow up, we can get more seriously wronged. We can face real persecution when we are innocent. You can face real enemies in this life. Sometimes the people who wrong us and mistreat us the worst are actually the people who are our friends. Sometimes they're the people that are our spouses, our loved ones who can wrong us. We all can be wronged in this life. We all will be wronged in this life. Maybe you have a specific person in your life that has hurt you a lot. And they don't show any signs of changing or apologizing. Even Satan himself 
is our enemy, and he is always looking for ways to mistreat us and wrong us. When enemies attack you, and they will, how do you respond to being wronged? How do you typically respond to being wronged? I think if we're honest, we have all responded poorly to being wronged before. We can sometimes overreact at our impulsive emotions, and we can take vengeance into our own hands. We can use that person's sin to justify some sin of our own. Or as good old Midwesterners, um, I think we can struggle with less direct forms of getting back. We can get bitter, and we can gossip, and we can talk about that person behind their back because we don't want them to know that we were wronged. Whatever the case, we find ways to sin in response to being sinned against often. And so my main point today is an attempt to give an alternative answer to that question. My main point is, when you are wronged, entrust yourself to him who judges justly. Entrust yourself to him who judges justly. And if you remember from our reading this morning in 1 Peter that Jake read, I'm basing that off of verse 23 in the example of Jesus who was wronged more than any of us. It says in 1 Peter of Jesus, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. I want to be clear from the outset, when we have a a main point or a command that we give to ourselves. This is something you've got to go do. We need to first anchor that in the completed work of Jesus, in his example, what he has done for his people already. And so I encourage you to remember that. We're also going to look to the example of David in this psalm, Psalm 17, because he, by faith, is being wronged. And he is entrusting himself to God in this psalm, in this prayer. And this psalm, like I said earlier, is a prayer. So if you're walking away from this sermon later and you're like, well, that was okay, but I don't really know how to entrust myself to God. Read Psalm 17. Read Psalm 17. Let this be your prayer the next time you are wronged, the next time you are mistreated by someone. See how David responded to it and how he entrusted himself and the entire situation to God and pray this as a, as a template. So with all that said, uh, I have two supporting points that... First, God is a just judge. We're going to cover that in verses 1 through 5. And we'll talk a little bit about verse 13 too. And secondly, God is the protector of the innocent in verses 6 through 15. And my hope is that if we really understand and believe that God is a just judge and that God is a protector of the innocent, then we will be able to entrust ourselves to him the next time we are wronged. So... 
Let's begin in verse 1. He says, Hear a just cause, O Lord, attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit. So we can see that David's pleading innocent. And I know what you're probably thinking. Aren't we supposed to, like, come before God and, and be like, no, God, I'm, I'm not innocent. Why is David saying, I'm innocent? Well, we know that David doesn't believe he's perfect. Uh, if we look at his other psalm, in Psalm 51, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He knew he was sinful from the moment he was born. That's something theologians like to call original sin. You and I have original sin. We are born sinful, and we have a presupposition towards sin. David knew that. So when David says, give ear to my prayer from lips free of deceit, he's not talking about an absolute innocence. He's talking about a situational innocence. And this is a very important distinction that we're going to look at in more in depth later. A situational innocence means that in this particular situation, God, I am innocent. I am righteous. I did not do anything wrong. We can be situationally innocent. Absolute innocence or righteousness is perfect holiness, which only God is. So we, we don't know exactly what situation he's talking about. Um, one that it possibly could have been was when King Saul was pursuing David and trying to kill him. In that situation, David was innocent. His lips were free of deceit. And so we know that. David said he is, being, he is crying out to God as well. He says, attend to my cry, give ear to my prayer. He's passionately praying. He, he is crying out to God. His lips are free of deceit, and he has a just cause. He's giving justifications as the, at the same time that he is passionately praying. Why would he give justifications for his prayer? Why would David do that? As I was reading about this, uh, James Montgomery Boyce's commentary on Psalm 17, it said it better than I could. He says, Most of all, it, Psalm 17, models prayer by the way the psalmist uses arguments to make his appeal to God. He does not merely ask for what he wants or needs. He argues his case, explaining to God why God should answer. Now you might say, that sounds a little odd. Why should I have to explain to God why he should answer? Boyce continues by saying we should argue because arguments force us to carefully think through what we are asking and to sharpen our requests. When we pray like this, honestly and fervently, it sharpens our request. When we give justifications for our prayers to God, it forces us to think more deeply about what we're really asking and who we are asking. And this vitality of prayer is so important when we are wronged. 
because it gives us an avenue for our emotions to be released. When we are wronged, it sucks. It sucks. Think of all the times you've been mistreated in this life. Times where someone hurt you and you did not deserve that. Maybe you were bullied. Maybe you were the victim of some form of discrimination. Whatever the case, a sibling rivalry. If you've been wronged in this life, you know there's a lot of yucky feelings that bubble up. And it's tempting when we think about those feelings and we get impulsive to want to take revenge into our own hands. Or at the very least, just get bitter towards that person. Get very upset with them and hold on to that. We were talking about this a couple weeks ago at Community Group, and uh, I'm going to quote Betsy Hiller, who quoted somebody else, but I don't know. I couldn't find the quote. So we'll just say Betsy came up with it. She said, Holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Holding on to bitterness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. When we hold on to bitterness when we are wronged in this life, it kills us on the inside. It eats at us. So I ask you the beginning question again. How do you typically respond when you are wronged? Are you holding on to bitterness against someone who has wronged you in your past? In verse 2, David does the opposite of what we often do. He entrusts his fate to the Lord. Verse 2, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. David is taking this situation and he's saying, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. The responsibility is all on God to do something here. David is giving it to him. It's in God's hands. And that's not an easy thing to do. It's not an easy thing to do that. He's asking for vindication from God. And vindication simply means when you are innocent, you're proven innocent. It's something a a good judge knows how to do. To vindicate somebody. It proves that they're really innocent when they are. And so we know David is innocent. And we know God is a just judge. So he should be vindicated immediately, right? You met the requirements, David. Here's your paperwork. Your application for vindication has been approved. God is just. You're innocent. Here you go. Done. Immediately. It's not how it works. Not so fast. David is asking for vindication because he's not being vindicated. He's been wronged and it's not coming. David, we don't know the situation here, but if it was indeed when he was being pursued by Saul, it could have been years until this prayer was answered. 
He could have been on the run for years and no vindication came. Sometimes in this fallen world, it can feel like the justice of God is delayed. To go back to the example of me and my sister, it would be like as if our parents were going out of town and they said, all right, Bridget, Jarrett, treat each other nicely while we're gone. And if you need anything, call us. And five minutes in, I'm already harassing my sister and she's getting, you know, mistreated. And she calls mom because she knows mom is good and she knows mom is going to handle the situation. And mom told her to call her. But what if mom didn't answer? Sometimes when we are wronged, it can feel like God is not a just judge or that he's just not listening. But God does not promise us that we will not be wronged. In fact, he promises the opposite. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. Jesus does not promise us we will never be wronged because he was wronged in this world. Jesus promises us that one day, if we are followers of him, he will wipe away every tear for every wrong we've ever suffered. And that is a real hope. And we are already promised so much right now. That's what, that's what David's appealing to. God is a just judge for us now. That's why he's saying, that's why he's saying, from your presence, let my vindication come. Let your eyes behold the right. That word let is something that is very important because he's saying, I know this is true, but let it happen now. Let your kingdom come and let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We need to pray the let prayers in our lives when we are wronged. We need to ask God to let it be, let us be vindicated now. And we have the right to do that. And at the same time, entrusting him with the timing. And we are being honest with God. And we can see David continue to be honest with God in verses 3 through 5. He says, starting in verse 3, You have tried my heart. You have visited me by night. You have tested me. You will find nothing. I have purposed that my mouth will not transgress. With regard to the works of man, by the word of your lips, I have avoided the ways of the violent. My steps have held fast to your paths. My feet have not slipped. David is, David is showing us how he has walked with integrity before God. But notice how often he says the word you to God four times in verse 3. He's putting the emphasis of his innocence on God's testing of him. He's opened himself up to this. This hasn't been an easy process. The Lord has really had to work on his heart 
And he's had to allow God to do that. You have tried. You have visited. You have tested. You will find nothing. We know David's not being prideful. He's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to write this, as all scripture is. He actually held fast to God's paths, and his feet did not slip. We can see uh, this even more when we look into the poetic style of this psalm. In verse 3, he says, You have visited me by night. I don't know about you, but if you show up uh, at our apartment at 3 o'clock in the morning and you visit me by night, you're going to get the real me. I'm not going to be able to make anything up. Like, you're going to see my pajamas with holes in them, and you're going to get the real me. You're going to see me as I really am if you show up in the middle of the night. That's what David's saying. He says, God, you see me as I really am. You know I'm innocent. You visited me by night. An interesting thing to note here, and a very important thing, is that so in verses 6 through 9, David makes his main appeal for God to protect him. But before he does that, he appeals to his innocence. As he approaches God, he needs a source of innocence. God is a just judge. If you go before a judge in Clay County or Cass County, you're not going to start by saying how guilty you are. You're going to tell them how you're innocent. And that's what David's doing. David was innocent in the situation. And that points us to Jesus' innocence as he was ultimately wronged far worse than David was. Jesus was absolutely innocent. David had a situational innocence. As we read earlier in 1 Peter, I'll read again. In 1 Peter 2, uh, verse 23, he says, When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. If we think we've been wronged, do we even know what it means to actually be wronged? Jesus was handed over to the authorities by his friend Judas. Some of Jesus' disciples denied they even knew him when he needed them most. Jesus was scourged whipped at a pole until he was near death. Then they gave him a heavy, heavy cross on his bloody shoulders. And he carried it. And then they ultimately put nails through his wrists and he died. And he was innocent. Absolutely innocent innocent. When you think of the example of Jesus, and then you think about your life, and I think about my life, how do you respond when you are wronged? 
Do you respond like Jesus? I think once we get a good picture of how Jesus was wronged, we really begin to see how much we fall short. How often we can get bitter and spiteful over just such small things compared to what Jesus suffered. We're not like that. When we're reviled, we revile back. When we suffer, we threaten the people that made us suffer. It's in our sinful nature. We're not like him. Which really should present a problem in our minds when we think of how David is praying here in Psalm 17. David's beginning his prayer by appealing to his innocence. And so we must ask ourselves, what if I'm not innocent? How can a guilty person go before a just judge and not be punished? If the Lord visited you by night, like he did with David, what would he find out? He already knows the secret sins that we try to hide. Psalm 17 teaches us that. It also teaches us that the Lord is just. He vindicates. He proves who's innocent. He is just. He'll prove who's innocent. And he will punish the guilty. Not because he's a jerk but because he's a good judge. If there was a judge in Cass County or Clay County that had criminals coming in all the time, and he said, oh, I love you, you can go free, and they committed horrendous crimes, would we say that's a good judge? No. We'd say that's a bad judge. God punishes sin because he's a good judge. And so when we think about this psalm, we need to ask ourselves, what if we're not innocent? What if we have sinned? What if, unlike David, our lips are full of deceit? What if our cause isn't just? What if it's selfish? (sighs) Friends, we have all sinned. And I don't say that on my authority, but on the authority of the Word of God. It says in Isaiah 53, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. In Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, including you and me. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, it says, Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. The Lord is just. He proves who's really innocent. Which is good news if you're like David and you're bringing a specific situation where you're innocent. But at the end of our lives, when we leave this earth and we bring our very lives before the just judge and we bring our very souls to him, he will see all the sins we've committed. And because he is just, he must punish sin. 
We must be absolutely innocent if we are to be vindicated. Exodus 34 hammers down this point. It says in verse 7, The Lord, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. He is forgiving, but how can he be forgiving if he doesn't clear the guilty? We are guilty. That means we deserve actually the punishment that the enemies of David deserve in this psalm. David is praying for the Lord's justice to go down on his enemies in verses 13 and 14. David prays, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword. From men by your hand, O Lord, from men of the world whose portion is in this life. (sighs) Guys, to God, ultimately we are not the innocent victims who have been wronged. Ultimately, to God, we are the guilty perpetrators who wronged the innocent one. All of us. Because of sin. We, as verse 13, 14 says, men of the world whose portion is in this life. We made our portion in this life by trading God's glory for our own glory. We made our portion here. We minimize that sin too. We love to minimize our sin. Say it's not a big deal. They struggle with that too. They deserve that. I I wronged them back because that's justice. We like to see things through our own eyes, but God sees sin as it really is. He's holy, and sin matters to a holy God. Every sin matters infinitely to a holy God. We need to see our sin through God's eyes not our own. If we're real with ourselves and we read the, the words from verse 13, deliver my soul from the wicked by your sword, we deserve the sword that goes down on the wicked. We all do. But what if someone was willing to take the sword for you? What if somebody was willing to step in and say, no, you, you, you hit that sword down, but I'll take that. They can go. What if someone was willing to take that blow for you when you were guilty and they were willing to step in, push you out of the way and say, I'll take the sword that they deserve. What if there was someone who was willing to pay for your sins? What if there was someone who is innocent, more innocent than David is pleading to be, not a situational innocence? What if there was someone who was absolutely innocent, righteous? What if there was someone who was so perfect, so patient, so loving that he never sinned once? And what if that person was willing to give up his innocence for your sake? 
friends, I don't know who you are, but you are not innocent. But there is a man named Jesus who was innocent for you. In the end, every sin ever committed in this life will be punished. It will either be punished in eternity in hell, or it will be punished on the cross. Those are the only two destinations for sin. If you have not put your trust in Jesus, I beg you to consider receiving him as your Lord, as your Savior, as your source of innocence before a just judge. He's willing to freely give his innocence to you, and he would love to do so. And if you have received the innocence of Jesus, if he is your Lord, let me encourage you to remember the joy of your salvation, that you were guilty, but that God dealt with your guilt, that you bear your sins no more, that all of your guilt is dealt with, and that you are free. You are vindicated. If you're vindicated this morning, can you say hallelujah? Hallelujah. Thank you. Okay, we're a little over halfway um, through the sermon, and I wanted to mostly focus on the justice of God and how we need innocence when we go before a just judge in the first half. In the second half, I'm going to try to emphasize on God being a protector of the innocent. So as Christians, we are imputed or given Jesus' innocence, and we have a promise that God will protect us because he is a just judge. All right. In verse 6, David says, I call upon you, for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me. Hear my words. David David's calling upon God, and he's so confident. He says, you will answer me. I wish I prayed that confidently. (laughs) How is David so confident? How does he know God's going to hear him? David knew who God was. He knew that God was a just judge, and he knew that he was innocent. And so likewise for us, as we just covered... Jesus is our innocence. And when we go before the just judge, we can pray in Jesus' name. We can say, I am not innocent, but Jesus was innocent for me, God. And we can have supreme confidence because of Jesus when we go before our God. Something else that's interesting about verse 6 is that... so. David says, I call upon you for you will answer me, O God. Incline your ear to me, hear my words. He asked for God to listen twice after he already said, you're going to listen. And I think at least one thing that encourages me in is that we can be confident that God is listening on one hand and we can ask for assurance on the other. I know you're listening but hear me. We can pray like that. Verse 7, if we go on, it, it's really the crux of David's prayer. It's where he's 
asking God for refuge from his enemies. He says in verse 7, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. So up till now, uh, David's been building up to this point. He's been pleading his case before the just judge. He's been appealing to his innocence and affirming that God is just. And now he asks, Wondrously show your steadfast love, O Savior of those who seek refuge from their adversaries at your right hand. Note that he asked for God to show something that already is there. The steadfast love is not something that was gone when David was being wronged, but David's asking that he would see it. The word in Hebrew for steadfast love is hased, and this points to God's covenant love and faithfulness for his people. It's the closest comparison we have is marriage. It's a covenant that is binding. And it's wrong to call it unconditional love. Sorry, our culture. But uh, any covenant or agreement, you have to meet stipulations to enter that covenant or agreement. Jesus, in the new covenant, asks us to believe in him, to repent of our sins, and we are welcomed into his covenant. That is a requirement to enter. And once we are members of covenant with God, once we are in covenant with God, the hased of the Lord is fully shown. He will not leave us. He is faithful. The hased of the Lord is said 26 times in a row in Psalm 136. It's a beautiful psalm. I'd encourage you to read it this week. It has um, these different... um, appeals to God's character, and at the very end of every verse, it has the same refrain, for the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. For the hased of the Lord endures forever. It's the same thing over and over and over and over again, which is pretty cool. When you think about it, it actually points to what hased means. God is staying with us in the covenant over and over and over and over again. He's not leaving us. He has an enduring love that is enduring even through the times we are wronged and mistreated. This is showing us that God is always a protector of the innocent even when it doesn't seem like it. David illustrates the kind of protection he's asking for from God in verses 8 and 9. He's using these colorful descriptions. He says in verse 8, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. The apple of the eye is the pupil. And it's obviously very important. You use your eyes a lot, I'm guessing. Um, And our eyes, as you probably know, are quite vulnerable. They can get dust in them. They can get debris in them. And so it's very important for us to have good protection for our eyes. That's why we wear safety glasses. That's why we have eyelashes. It keeps our eyes safe. And David's asking, God, protect me like that. 
He goes on, keep me in the shadow of your wings. This is something that I found really cool. Birds have a natural God-given tendency to really care about their young. If you're a parent, maybe you understand. I don't get it yet. Um, Birds, they construct these intricate nests made of twigs and mud and Walmart bags and whatever they can find. Birds, they, they make these nests so well for their little eggs. And then when it's cold outside, it doesn't matter how cold it is, you better believe Mama Bird's going to be sitting on her eggs to make sure they stay warm. And then once they're born, Mama Bird feeds her chicks a rich diet. I know worms sound gross to us, but that's like McDonald's if you're a baby bird. They feed them that because they want to take care of them. And so after all of that work, imagine you're a mama bird and you go through all that work to make sure this baby chick is still alive. And then some jerk hawk or something comes in and is trying to take your chick. You're like, no way, Jose. You put that thing under your wing. Not in my house. I just went through so much work to get this thing where it is. I'm not letting you take this sucker. When danger comes, a mama bird's going to protect her chick. And David's saying, God, protect me like that. Protect me like that, God. When I'm wronged, when I'm mistreated, when I'm in danger, protect me like that. And so can we. But now we might be starting to wonder, okay, God is this protector. David's asking for protection. But does God always protect his people? Christians, we're, we're just safe. We're immune from danger in this life, right? Because God is our protector. Nothing's going to hurt us, right? According to the Esther Project, 322 Christians are killed for their faith every month. And 214 churches and Christian properties are destroyed every month. And 772 forms of violence, beatings, kidnappings, rape, arrest, are committed against Christians every month. So if God is a protector of the innocent, and by innocent, I mean Christians who have Christ's innocence on their behalf, why are these people not protected? They have Jesus' innocence. They're, they're perfectly, absolutely innocent before God. Why isn't he protecting them? Is he unable to? Why does this happen? It can be hard, going back to our main point, to entrust yourself to a God that you're not sure is going to protect you. It can be hard to, like verse 2, From your presence, let my vindication come. It can be hard to do that when you don't think he's going to protect you. And David's in big trouble here, guys. He's he's not, he's not like not in danger. Like he's in danger. In verses 10 through 12, he says, 
They close their hearts to pity, describing his enemies. With their mouths they speak arrogantly. They have now surrounded our steps. They set their eyes to cast us to the ground. He is like a lion, eager to tear, as a young lion lurking in ambush. David is innocent, yet he is in grave danger. Where is the Lord's protection there? Where is his protection when these Christians are being killed and misused and abused? How can we entrust ourselves to God who judges justly if he doesn't protect us? Ultimately, to see the Lord's perfect protection of every single believer in Jesus, we must take a step back. We need to see our lives in light of eternity, to see God's perfect protection for every one of his beloved children. David asks in verse 13, Arise, O Lord, confront him, subdue him. In response to our enemies that we face right now, in response to the trouble and the suffering and the mistreatment that we endure in this life now, we ask for help now. And we entrust ourselves at the same time, no matter what the result is in this life. We begin to see what looking only at this life would be like in verse 14 when the wicked are described. In verse 14 it says, From men of the world whose portion is in this life. A portion is what you need to be satisfied. For me, it's like about this much mashed potatoes and like that burger and like that much vegetables. That's what you need to be full, right? We have different portions. That's fine. Um, our portion, what we need to be satisfied if we are of God's people, is not in this life. If we look for it in this life, we won't find it. The wicked, the ones who oppose God, look for their portion here. And they will not find it. In a weird way, God may actually be protecting Christians who are persecuted today from the even greater threat to put your portion in this life. Because if you put your portion in this life, your hope would be crushed to find out that it was all for nothing. That the things you believed in Whatever they are, the things in this life, if you put your hope here, they'll let you down. They'll be over before you know it. They will not last. Because when we are wronged, when we are persecuted, I don't know about you, but it kind of like can serve as like a slap across the face and be like, ah, this ain't it. This life, whatever this is, this is not where my portion is. This, is. this is not it. I don't know where it is, but it's not here. And we can use that to remember the better portion. The one that's coming. 
We can use it as a reminder to look towards eternity with Jesus. Listen to Jesus' words in Matthew 5. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We, like David and Jesus, are wronged in this sinful world. But we can rejoice in God's protection by having an eternal mindset. If we truly believe God is a protector of the innocent, and our innocence is in Christ now, we will be able to entrust ourselves to him when we are wronged. Towards the end of verse 14, it says, You fill their womb with treasure, they are satisfied with children, and they leave their abundance to their infants. I know in many uh, translations, it seems like it's the same subject, uh, it's still describing the wicked throughout the whole verse. But I, I saw that many commentators said that it could be translated, as for your treasured ones, you fill their womb with treasure. So there's a different subject halfway through verse 14. First, it's the wicked who have their portion in this world. Then it's God's people who are filled with treasure from God. Which, assumedly, we can say that that treasure is not of this world, as we just discussed. Our portion ain't here, folks. And that points us to the dazzling hope in verse 15 of our hope being in eternity with God. That's how David ends his prayer, and that is how we'll end this morning. Verse 15, David ends in triumphant hope. He says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. That satisfaction we're looking for is coming. When we're wronged and we feel the tinge of this world. This last week while I was preparing, I heard a song come on the radio called Less Like Me by Zach Williams. Maybe you've heard of it. Um, a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. Um, and he starts off by singing, Oh, I have days I lose the fight, try my best, but just don't get it right. Well, I talk a talk that I don't walk and miss the moments right before my eyes. He's a Christian, but he's realizing that his actions do not reflect what his words are. He's not following the Lord as he knows he should. And I think... When we think about being wronged and how we choose to revile back, we can feel the same way. I felt the same way when I heard that song. Thank God. I'm not like you, Jesus. I, I revile people back. I, I, I hold bitterness. But the chorus of that song is, Oh Lord, help me be a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. Ultimately, the reason we don't respond well to wrongdoing is because we're not like God. We're sinful. The root problem is not being like God. We're not like Him. But we can pray that now. We can say, Lord, help me be a little more like Jesus. When he was reviled, he did not revile back, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. We can pray that prayer 
That's sanctification. In this life, we grow in holiness with Jesus by praying prayers like that. Make me a little more like Jesus, a little less like me. And I, I say that to come back to verse 15 and realize there will be a day when we don't pray that prayer. We won't pray, make me a little more like Jesus because we will be like him. Guys, we will have no more sin. We will be like him. We'll be satisfied in his likeness. Oh, what a glorious day that will be. And while we wait for that day, we can pray those prayers to be a little more like him. And we can entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father. You, Jesus, were wronged more than any of us. And yet you did not revile back. You did not threaten. But you continued entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. Lord, when we think of how we've been wronged in this sinful world, Lord, would you give us conviction of the ways we have just fallen short in our response, the ways we've held on to bitterness against the people who hurt us, the ways we've reviled back, we've sinned in response to being sinned. God, forgive us. And Lord, help us take hope in that Jesus did not, that Jesus entrusted himself to you, Father, and that through him, we have hope to one day be with you and to be like him in your presence. May that day come soon, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.